Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. Michael, Angela, Tommy, JT, the people that work in the store are going to be a lot more relevant in my post moving forward because I want people to know everything about this store, not just my face in a burger constantly back and forth. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. The young guns in our industry are full of new ideas. They're out there creating an entirely new business model for restaurants centered around media and the diversification of revenue. Today, we chat with Matt Kushner, a fledgling restaurateur ready to change the industry and impact his community. We're taking a front row seat to see what happens when old school meets new school. I'm probably the only person you're ever going to have on the show that has this exact story, but I spent the better half of a decade trying to get out of restaurants. And then this great opportunity came in my lap and I couldn't turn it down. So I actually turned down an opportunity to buy into a pizzeria. And they offered me a small percent equity to be the acting owner when I was 22. And I completely turned it down. About six months into it, I was like, oh, I just made the biggest mistake of my life. This was my first at bat. But I made a promise to myself, if I ever had another opportunity that I'm just going to go all in, I'm not going to think about it, put my blinders up and dive into it. So that's exactly what I did with this opportunity. I was working at a fine dining establishment and I did a little bit of everything, right? I did pantry, I cooked steaks, I worked middle, I worked saute, prep, whatever. Wherever I was needed the most was my favorite job. I was working there and COVID hit. I watched 60 of my friends get laid off and there was just four of us standing, my general manager, my sous chef, my brother and myself. And we just ran the carryout game for the first, man, I think it was the first four months before we opened up to 25% capacity. But towards the end of it, the owner, Bill Cruz, came in and I overheard him talking about potentially buying the place next door. So me, I just slid myself into the conversation. I said, look, I know you're not going to want to run it, but I'm sure you're going to want somebody to run it for you. And I'm the man. Let's make this happen. So we sat down a couple of times and he was actually in the process of opening another restaurant literally two blocks away. So he ended up backing out, but he said, you know, I'll introduce you to Roger and get you set up if you want to do that. And I said, yep. And at this point, the rest is history. So how'd you finance it? So I got really blessed, man. I got a really, really good opportunity. The owner of the business is the one who financed me. And he set me up with the contract that he was going to write for his son. So I got a really great deal and he saw something in me or maybe just wanted to give a chance because I'm sure somebody gave him a chance in the past and he helped me out a lot. So you took over this restaurant in the middle of a global pandemic. And I'm curious from your perspective, how on earth did you see that as an opportunity? <laughs> well, it's a great opportunity to negotiate. In this situation, he helped me out a lot as far as the financing, obviously. But on the same token, it was a good opportunity for me to negotiate rent, right? So I was like, okay, I get a really cheap rent and I'm going to lock it in for five years. We're not going to be in this thing forever. Obviously, two years in, we're still feeling it. 
but I knew at some point it would continue to scale up. And if I can lock in these rate rent in a downtown area, then it was the smartest thing to do. The name of the restaurant is Red Nap. How long has it been around? It's been around for 72 years in July. You're a young guy. You got tons of great ideas. You're smart. You're innovative. And you decided to pick up a legacy brand. And from the outside, that looks like a risk, right? It's been running the same way for 70 years without fail. And you come in with these new ideas in an existing concept, in an existing client base. Did you see that as a risk going into it? Naively, no. (laughs) But I did in a little sense, right? So I didn't want to change anything on the inside. I didn't want to change the menu too much, especially like the first six months. I was like, if I change anything, no one's going to come back. And I got to first let these people know that I have the right intentions. I want to do best for them and for the business and to keep this thing going on. So I spent a lot of time at the beginning, just reassuring everybody that walked through the door, like, I will keep your classics. I will keep the stuff you love but I want to at some point elevate the menu a little bit. So I didn't really change too much when I first came in, but now we're kind of all over the place. We're adding new things, crazy burgers and things like that. There are constant discussions in our industry. And I look at this and I think of you all the time. Everyone talks about how hard it is to motivate millennials, right? They're either lazy or they don't share the same work ethic, but you're a guy I know that works seven days a week and you lead your team. You don't manage your team and you focus on inspiring your team. I want you to talk to me about the values that you bring to this role that inspire such an amazing team and your perspective as a millennial on leading millennials in today's environment. Yeah, absolutely. So I think every generation has that, right? You look back 10 years, oh, things aren't how they used to be. And then again, things aren't how they used to be. And I feel like that's going to forever go on. So I just hyper-focus on two things specifically, right? Compassion and empathy. How do they feel about any given situation? And how can I be compassionate about how they approach these? So I made a decision very early on to hyper-focus on culture and in creating an environment where they wanted to be not where they needed to be. So we do fun stuff like with our videos and stuff, just that alone, the kids love it, right? Being featured in a video, they go and show their friends or someone spots them out of school. So I saw that video that you were in. Little things like that. I think really leading is just, I know it sounds silly, but at this point in time and just how I've seen like all the old heads in the restaurant is giving the people the days off when they ask for them and not saying, hey, you know what? You have to come in. You have to. I give everyone every single day off they've ever requested. And I made it very clear at the beginning that I was going to do that. But if we do this route, that we all have to work together. So if, if someone requests that day off, I need somebody else to pick it up out of respect for each other. And that way we can all have the time off that we wanted. So I feel like that key part was super important. And I think there's probably been two times where I haven't been able to cover a shift. And I mean, that just leaves me working it. And for me, that's totally okay. I can connect with our regulars a lot cleaner in that aspect because I'm there and they see that I'm hands-on with everything still to this day. So I feel like leading compassion and empathy and giving people the time off they want is pretty core values on why we've been successful with this millennial generation. I want to talk about the differences between management and ownership. You know, I've talked to a bunch of people that have never owned and say, you know, I could do anything. I've managed every restaurant there is to manage. I've had every position there is to manage. And I turn to all of them and I say the same thing, which is, well, you haven't owned yet. And owning mm-hmm. is very different than managing. It's very different than all facets of managing. And it's not because of what happens within the four walls of the restaurant while you're open. It's because of what happens late at night when you're laying in bed, staring at the ceiling. 
Can you talk to me about that jump from management and operations to ownership and the lessons that you learned, especially in those early days? Yeah. Well, especially at the beginning, it was so similar, the management and ownership, but it was because I was working in the business and not working on it. As you know, that's like the key separator, right? You can be in there day to day and wiping down tables, busing tables, washing dishes, but that's more from the management aspect. The ownership is sitting down and building relationships with the people coming in your door and not so hands-on with everything. That's bringing new people in the door and keeping the existing customers happy or guests happy. And I feel like that's pretty much a key divider. Well, in order to get out of it, you have to begin to delegate, which is hard as a seasoned owner, but I'm sure it's even harder as a new owner. What was your path to delegation? Yeah, so I'm really still on it. I finally got to a point where I got three of my front of the house trained up in a good spot. They're all young, but they're mature for their age. They're amazing with conversation. And it really just took me getting out of my own way, trusting them that they're going to do the right thing when I'm not there. And I think the biggest thing that I realized is like, they're going to make mistakes. Just like I made a ton of mistakes getting up to the point where I'm at now. And I got to let them make mistakes. That's how they're going to learn. And we can build our systems. And that's another thing that you and I talked about is having a flow chart to where they don't have to ask you any questions. And so far, what I've built out has proven beneficial. I got asked one question. I slid them over the chart. They did it. They got everything done. And I was like, do you need to ask me a question? He's like, no, they solved it. So having that flow chart and having that thing for them to access at any time is it not only made me feel better, but I know it made them feel more confident because anytime I've ever worked anywhere, when the owner's sitting over my shoulder, even if I've done this a thousand times, you get that, that little itch, that hesitation where you might make yeah, a mistake. Yeah. And this way, if I can just step back and let them do their thing, I believe that there's going to be less mistakes. I think that there's a whole conversation to be had around empowering your team, not disempowering your team unintentionally. I don't think that any owner exists out there to make their team feel helpless or stupid or incapable of completing a task. But it's in the way that we present the information can either empower or disempower them. One of the things that you do, which I absolutely love, and Lord knows there's a fine line here, but you work to collaborate with your team when it comes to menu programming, when it comes to specials, when it comes to content creation. Talk to me about the benefits you've seen as well as some of the hurdles to overcome there. Yeah. And honestly, there's not that many hurdles. Honestly, it's that portion I think has been one of the most successful parts of how I've approached this. And I felt like taking a different approach to how things have been done for the last hundred years is the smartest route in today's day and age. So I give the kitchen full creative freedom to create whatever dishes they want. And I've never turned down a dish. I said, okay, let's try it. We run it for two months. It doesn't sell. Okay. What do you got next? And allowing them to do that is not only makes them happy and makes them feel involved because everyone in the kitchen minus one absolutely loves to cook. They love the process. They love everything about it. And they've never had this creative freedom for the entire time that they've ever been in the industry. So giving that gives them a sense of ownership and they love it. And the best part is it translates to your guests as well. When I tell my guests, every name that you see on the menu, whether it's Angie's barbecue burger or Michael's Hawaiian burger, those are the people that design the burger. And every single time people go, oh, no way. That is so cool. And so it's not just empowering your staff, but it's letting your guests know that 
this is a team effort. This is a team collaboration and we're a family here. And that was a huge part for me to let people know that like this is a family aesthetic. It's not just a family business, but we're a family here as well. You are a man that is eager to learn. From the moment we met, you seemed very humble and very excited to learn and to evolve as an owner and as an operator. And for me, it was super inspiring. And in an effort to be completely transparent with the folks listening, you are one of my coaching clients. And to watch your evolution over the last several months has been super inspiring. What I wanted to do is take some time in this conversation to run through some of the really amazing evolutions that I think we've seen together over the course of the last several months. You down? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I want to start with goal setting, right? Because everybody has ambitions. I want to make more money. I want to get busier. Beautiful ideas. And practical application, really hard to commit to in the abstract. So one of the first things that you and I tackled was goal setting. And we did it through an experiment of trying to sell gift cards. How many gift cards did you sell over the holidays? Do you remember? Yeah. So it's funny. I'm just going to touch on the goal setting aspect too, because I'm a huge believer in setting like big, massive, audacious goals that are like almost out of reach. So like everyone else in the group was like 2,000, 3,000. I'm like 10,000. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just aim high because my theory is like you aim for this high number. Even if you fall a little short, it doesn't matter. You still did well. And then after that, you can build up to that next year and figure out how to make it better. So I set a $10,000 goal and we ended up selling a little over $5,000, which is still amazing. Absolutely. And the way you did it in such a short period of time, I think it was super interesting. Talk to me about the win-win-win strategy that you created to hit those numbers. Absolutely. So we talked about some sort of incentives for our staff. And so I just went right to the source. I said, what do you guys want? What is it going to take for you to sell this to hit these goals? And jokingly, one of the girls was like, a laptop. And I was like, okay, why not? So I went out and I got a good laptop. My brother's super tech smart. So I was like, I sent him the specs. He's like, is this good? He's like, it's perfect for what they need. So I grabbed it, set it on the counter. I said, all right, here's your guys' goal. Let's go for it. And let's talk about that because we've explored that in a variety of ways over the course of the last several months. How much easier is it for you as an owner operator to simply go to the source? When you wonder what your customers are in the mood for, what's going to motivate them, who do you ask? Yeah. Well, honestly, that's everything to me. I tell every single one of my guests, this place has been around for a very long time. It's not for me. Every decision I make is for you. So if you have something wrong, if you want to see something new, just be vocal about it. I'm going to collect my data and I'll give you a perfect example. I took the sloppy Joe off the menu when we first opened. I'm like, who the heck is going to order a sloppy Joe at a restaurant? Right. And I've had probably five guests look at me and said, I'm walking out. I'll be back when you bring the Sloppy Joe. And it was a couple of times enough for me. I said, all right, I'll bring the Sloppy Joe back. You guys want it? And they've shown me why they want it back. So it, just from that very early on lesson, I decided to just listen to everybody, right? This is their store. It's not mine. When they want something new, take that information, make sure I hear from at least 10 people, and then start implementing those things. And it's not just on the guest basis. It's my team as well. Even if I know the answer to something, I'll automatically ask one of my employees and say, how do you feel about this? Or what do you think should be done? And most of the time, they'll answer in the way that I thought. And sometimes they'll be like, why don't we try X, Y, Z? I'm like, well, I didn't think about that. So we're going to do that. And I think that is the most important thing is just listening to the people that are hands-on with the stuff at all times. Like I haven't been in the kitchen in 
probably a little under a year at this point. Although at the beginning, I was in there stuck in there the first two months, you know, and now it's like, okay, I asked them what can be done differently or what could be easier for you. They tell me what could be easier and we make that change, right? It's the people that are hands on with it should be the ones that make the decisions. Obviously, at the end of the day, it's always the owner's decision, but listening to your team and letting them make decisions, I think is huge. Prior to the pandemic, I could barely use my iPhone. I'm a restaurateur, not a tech guru. But over the last two years, we've seen that tech can play a vital role in helping us make more money and save money. And that tech can show up at some pretty unlikely places, like your kitchen sink. Dawn Professional is a detergent and degreaser that can help reduce your labor expense and your overhead on cleaning supplies through leveraging the latest technological innovation in cleaning products. Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser is specifically formulated to cut grease two times faster versus the leading food service degreasers. While Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink, reducing sink changeover versus the leading competitor's professional dish soap. Save time and money by upgrading to Dawn Professional Manual Pot and Pan Dish Detergent and Dawn Professional Multi-Service Heavy-Duty Degreaser from PNG Professional. Let's talk about perceived value. This was one of the biggest lessons from the early days of us working together. You actually made mention of it when you talked about including the names of your team on the menu. For generations in this industry, we have established value as restaurateurs through selling the most amount of stuff for the lowest price for the longest period of time. And it was one of the first things that I wanted to work on with you because true perceived value from the customers that you want to have, it's not valued based on money. It's valued based on ideology and all of the intangibles that are out there. When we met, you were undercharging and overportioning, Forgetting the courage that it takes to make changes to situations like that, what did that experience teach you about perceived value in the mind of your customer? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing is as long as you know you're providing the most value, the decision should be pretty easy for you. You know, it's scary. I know you avoided that a little bit, but when you have a place that's been around for 72 years and people have been getting the same price for probably the last 40 and you're running the numbers and going, how the heck were they making money before? It's a little bit easier, but I do believe if you bring the most value, add things on the menu, like you said, our stuff is locally sourced. Our buns are delivered fresh daily from the home bakery next door. You know, our meat is delivered from a small mom and pop shop that gets their meat locally, adding value and value propositions to the menu. And I've gotten so many compliments on how great the menu looks now. And people aren't as focused on the prices, but it's this nice, beautiful display. Most diners you go to, you get that old school diner menu, which is what I started off with, right? That was my gut reaction. And then you're like, oh man, make this thing look nice. Make it look good bring the value through the menu, get better card stock, things like that. It's made all the difference in the world for sure. Well, and I mean, to get super practical, you are now charging more for less. You have smaller portion sizes on a more expensive menu item. I think it highlights a really important point, which is what people want is enough and too much isn't seen as more valuable. Let's talk about the burger because I think it was a great example. And I think you had a really, a really acute perception. 
What was it about the experience your customers were having with the burgers that inspired you to reduce the portion size? So when I took over, they had a five ounce patty and I'm like, no, let's go up to eight ounce. They used to smash them down really flat and people love the big burger. But I was like, if we keep them bigger, we can cook better times. All the flavor will stay in there. So we went that route. But then I'm looking at all these tables. Burgers are half eaten. Half of the fries are eaten. All the milkshakes gone because everyone starts with the milkshake. Right. (laughs) And then so, yeah, after we had got to talking, I'm like, okay, well, we need to increase the prices. But how can we make this beneficial in the same time? So we lowered the beef count. And what that did for us is obviously it made us more profitable by lowering the beef count. But also, too, it saved us money on to-go boxes because people are taking their half burgers home and their fries. And what I'm seeing now is people are leaving full, they're leaving happy, and they're not leaving with carryout boxes even close to the amount that they were before Some folks are just born marketers. You're just born with a marketing mindset. And you, sir, are definitely one of those folks. And it seems to me like you found your voice most authentically on TikTok. Why is that your preferred platform? Yeah, to be honest, organic reach. I watched it pop up as Musical.ly. And I looked at it. I played around with a little bit. But at that time, it was only lip singing and dancing. So I'm like, I don't really know how to utilize this platform, but I'm going to keep an eye on it. We'll just see what ends up happening. And funny enough, six years ago, I was like super against technology. I had a flip phone. I said, I don't need any of this crap, like whatever, Instagram, I'm good. And then I realized how important it is for business. And I was like, I should probably learn this. And then when TikTok came around, my friend Chelsea opened up an ice cream shop. And I was like, look, dude, it's TikTok now. It's not musically. There's a lot more room to play around. You need to get on this. And I started watching her grow and her scale. And then Red Naps opportunity came up. So I was like, okay, I got to just start filming content and start getting comfortable on it because most people are scared to be on camera, whether it's their voice or their face or anything about it. But you start to build that comfortability at some point, And it's just like, you just kind of got to start. You're based in a smaller town, though. And so I'm curious to know, do you think you see the same benefits as someone in Los Angeles or Chicago on the platform? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's a no brainer. Whether the people are watching from New Zealand or they're watching from England or they're watching from anywhere, the world is a lot smaller than it used to be. As soon as the Internet opened up access to the world, my cousin in Ireland just saw my TikTok and told my cousin Stacy about it. And then Stacy told her friend Jennifer and is now coming to Red Naps because someone in Ireland saw it. So it's not just the small town and it's not just the country. This goes across the entire world. We have a core group of people that watch us from New Zealand and from Canada. And it may not be directly people bringing in but it's people aware of your brand and it's people aware of your personal brand and yourself as well. So it's massively beneficial, whether in your small town or a massive city. Well, and you are seeing that it is bringing in butts in seats. People are coming to you directly referencing the things that you're posting on a daily basis. Absolutely. They're asking me to make dishes that I made on there, special milkshakes. I see at least seven people every single week come into my store that found us on TikTok. And these are people driving from a half hour away up to two hours away just to come check us out. And the best part about those numbers, it's that's just the people telling you that. I've had people come into the store, eat, and then go home, comment on the TikTok. Oh, I was just there, but I was too nervous to say anything. 
So if I'm tracking those seven people, the ones that are willing to speak, how many more are there that are just typing behind the keyboard because that interaction made them feel uncomfortable or whatever it is? So yeah, it's it's huge bringing people in the store. Let's talk about your evolution on the platform. I would assume that your storytelling strategy has evolved over time. Forgetting what it was when you first started, what is it today? When you press record, what are you trying to get across? Yeah, so I really, even just this last week, put a lot of thought into this. And I believe that telling your story, the stuff that you're uncomfortable talking about, is going to connect with a lot more people than you might think. I was 18. I was homeless for a brief period of time. And I've shared that on a couple posts with people. And it seems that I get more engagement and more people say, oh, you're doing so great or whatever it is. They're engaging on these posts a lot more than if you just go, well, here's the burger. I flip the burger. I season the burger. So walking them through the process of building the thing is beneficial and it's worked out good for us. But I'm pivoting more now to documenting versus creating. So not some like cut and dry, high produced content. It's more just kind of the day to day, getting to know the characters of our store. Michael, Angela, Tommy, JT, the people that work in the store are going to be a lot more relevant in my post moving forward because I want people to know everything about this store, not just my face in a burger constantly back and forth. It's worked really great for us now, but I want to experiment. And I think with marketing, you have to experiment. You have to be constantly trying new things. I mean, I went to a Lions game and I filmed that video. I don't think it should be subjective to just your restaurant. And I'll give you an example. I went to Hyde Park. My buddy works there. And we went there for Valentine's Day, my wife and I. And I made a post about it because we had a great experience. It was, it was awesome. And then I had this lady yesterday comment on my Facebook and she says, well, I just don't understand why you're marketing other restaurants. Well, I said, well, because if you have a great experience and you want to share it with people and if you go out and you have that same great experience, there's a chance that you're going to come to my store now because you trust that I sent you to a good spot. So I don't think it should be just subjective to your day to day, but your entire day to day. Your I woke up and this is what I did. Or when I went to Restaurant Depot, people for some reason like to see me shopping. I don't know. But there's so many different avenues and routes to take in this. But the one I'm hyper focused on right now, which I'm going to start producing a lot more of is documenting versus creating because creation can be extremely difficult. You're going to drive yourself crazy because social media is a full-time job. You have to be about it. You have to be on top of it and you have to be consistent. If you're not consistent, nobody's going to pay attention. And I know I spent 63 days getting Gordon Ramsay's attention and I was consistent (laughs) every single day. And you know what? On that 63 day, I'm scrolling through TikTok and I see myself pop up and I lost it, bro. And it just shows you the power of consistently posting every day will get you where you want to be. Well, let's talk about that, because I think more important than posting and posting every day is posting in a way that resonates with you, having fun with it, that it's less of a chore and more of a joy because you found a way to engage with social media in a way that's engaging for you. And one of the things you do that's a lot of fun is you go after major celebrities on social media. Talk to me about different things you've done and the benefits you've seen from it. Yeah. So the first round was getting Gordon Ramsay's attention. I noticed that when you run a series on TikTok, people love to follow along the series, especially if it's so audacious 
that they're like, I just kind of want to see him fail. So you get the negative side, but you also get the people cheering you on, which is really cool. When I started this series, Top Ahead, I think we had 14,000 followers. And through the process, the 63 days of attempting to get Gordon Ramsay's attention, we got well over 75,000 followers in that time. So 14 to 75, which was just massive for us. And the best part is it built a core community for our channel just based on getting the attention. And, and honestly, I was just scrolling through one day and I saw him making fun of someone's food. So I was like, I can get him to make fun of my food if I just do some outrageous stuff. Like maybe I'll stuff some gummy worms in a burger and some whatever, just the most outrageous things I could think of. I started doing that to get his attention. And the entire goal, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but I told my team, I said, I just want him to call me a donut. I know that's silly, but <laughs> <laughs> I really want that. And he did. So that was super cool. And, and that's the power of a series. It's not just the community building, but when he posted it, that video is at 20 million views on his page. And I live forever on his page. It's so incredible. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. I think a centerpiece to your strategy is this broadcasting versus engagement. You aren't just pushing information out there. You are actively engaging, consistently engaging with everyone that is viewing and commenting and direct messaging across all platforms. Oh, yeah. Well, I spent hours replying to comments some days. You hit a video that hits, say, as an example, 200 comments. I'm responding to every single one of those comments, maybe for two days. If it gets out of hand and your video does a million views, which multiple of ours have, I can't keep up with all the comments, but if I can hit 85% of them, I count that as a win because you still got to be commenting on all the stuff that you're producing from that video from two days ago. So say you put out two more, you got to make sure you're hitting all those marks because I believe that's one of the key successes to how fast we built and the success of it because you can reply back to people's comments with a video. So I mm -hmm. use their comments to make another video. So they're essentially giving you more content in that same aspect. but. To build a community, you have to reply to every single person. They're giving you that time, right? They give you the 30 seconds to watch the video, and then they gave you another 30 seconds to type out that thing. And I think typing back and taking that 30 seconds is extremely valuable for the growth. You're also all in on YouTube. What benefits do you see to that platform for independent restaurateurs? Every platform has a different age demographic, right? Facebook's now stating that they're 65 and up is the bulk of who's on Facebook, which makes total sense. TikTok at the same token is a lot of the younger generation. It's millennials, but YouTube is everywhere. It is extremely across the board. So although organic reach is dead on YouTube, if you spend just say $100 per video, you can get anywhere from 5,000 to 7,000 views in that time frame. And the cool thing about YouTube, and honestly, this translates to TikTok as well, but I saw more 50 and up coming in and telling me they saw my YouTube ads than the younger generation. But like I said, on TikTok too, it's not just the younger generation. I got some 45-year-old single women that found us on TikTok and love seeing our videos. And then the same thing, there's 80 plus that are their granddaughter or grandson show them the TikTok and they have that connection with us as well. I think it's extremely important to be on as many platforms as possible because 
there's people that don't use Instagram that use TikTok or that use YouTube but don't use Instagram. And the most beneficial thing about YouTube, and a lot of ad platforms are like this, but I really like YouTube, that you can target your neighborhood. Our place is a very, very well-known in our neighborhood and throughout other cities as well. But people in these neighborhoods have been coming here for 40, 50, 60 years. And the fact that I can drop ads right on top of them. So when they go to do YouTube, I'm in the 48083. I'm in 48085. I'm in all these different area codes that are surrounding our store. And it's not just, well, I put an ad out there and hopefully it's not reaching someone in Canada that's never going to come here. This is very, very specific. And I love it. It's not that expensive, but I do think you should be willing to pay to do these things. And you got to look at it like this too, is the videos may be free. It takes my time to make them, but I'm also building things in these videos. So you got to factor in the food cost as well. And you can use that as a marketing write-off, which is nice, but it's going to cost some money to get these videos up unless you're just face the camera, which I don't do a lot of, so I don't know how useful it is. But from the stuff that I do know, as long as you're willing to spend some money, it works out in your favor big time. I want to talk about prioritization. So in our first conversation, I was like, what are you best in the world at? And you were like, I'm best in the world at social media. I get it. Like some people just get it and I just get it. And I was like, awesome. Let's assume like 100% of your day. How much of your day do you spend doing social media? And you were like, Almost none. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And you were like, yeah, I spend almost none of my time doing this thing that I'm best in the world at. And I would argue that that situation certainly doesn't hold true today. How has your life and your business changed now that you're spending so much more of your time sitting in your circle of genius? Yeah. So at the beginning is a lot of me working in the kitchen. The first two months I would make the food, I'd sprint to the front, I'd talk to all the guests, I'd sprint back to the kitchen, keep building. So like all my time was just sucked in working in the business. And now it's evolved to the point where I don't really need to be hands-on with anything and I can solely focus on generating the content and building relationships with people too. Going to office buildings, introducing myself. I mean, even a year and a half into this thing, I still have so many people that have no idea there's a new owner. They have no idea that things have changed except for, oh, the menu looks really nice. That makes sense that somebody else took over. So I think for me, having that opportunity to go out and meet people and talk to people and solely focus on the social media aspect is everything because I know that I have a solid team around me to hold down the day to day. Like even our busiest times, I kind of just sit back and I watch them operate. And for me, it's massive. What are your goals for this year? When you look to the balance of the year and into the subsequent years, what are your hopes for yourself and for the restaurant? Absolutely. So number one is getting more time back with my wife. March 10th will be two years of seven days a week because when I was working at the chop house, I was seven days a week there too because it was beneficial in my favor. That's why there's only four of us because I wouldn't give up any hours. So number one focus is spending time with my wife. And I feel like that's going to translate for me doing better in the business as well. Us having that time and me having a little relaxation time, although I don't really know how to relax. I'm pretty much just go, go, go at all times. I think it's going to translate really well for the business. And number one goal is just keep producing content. It's what I love to do. And I know how huge it is for the success of my business and for our business to continue to grow. 
It's an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Absolutely. And it's short and sweet, and it always hits home for me. The number one thing, at least in my perspective and where I'm coming from, is your team does not work for you. You work for your team. You work to give them a great experience and to teach them as many lessons so that they can continue to be successful, whether working for you or going somewhere else. That's Matt Kushner. For more on Rednaps, visit rednapsrochester.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.